It's been an enormous privilege to serve with you this week. I've been enormously encouraged to see the living and true God powerfully at work in so many people this week in just the conversations that I've shared with you, hearing how God has been at work in your heart and mind in the recent past over many, many years. It's just been so encouraging. So thank you because... I've been sharpened and I've learned things about our God from you, from your questions, from our discussion over the scriptures. And so I just thank God for the opportunity that it's been for me and for you, for us together. Uh, I want to thank to those who here who I know who've been praying for me um, every year. Uh, I share with a few people that um, my voice goes on about day two. Um, it's not normally this croaky. I have a perpetually croaky voice from day two of Ancon through to the end of the week, it seems. But I'm just thankful that the Lord has, you know, preserved my voice so I could keep doing the work that he's given us to do. Uh, and I thank those people who've been praying for me and for my work. So thank you for your partnership in what we do here together. Um, we all need prayer, don't we? We all just need prayer because we need the Lord to sustain us each day. Uh, in his mercy and grace. So thank you for the part of being God's people with you. It's an enormous blessing and privilege in my life. I hope it is in yours too. Well, this is the final morning. Here we are. It's not over yet. This is not just sort of a recap of the highlights. We've got, we've got some more, more to do. There's more to know. There's more to know about our great God. In fact, we'll keep learning about him for all eternity. How awesome is that? But you might be feeling at this particular juncture fairly tired. I understand that. We have a bit of a, a, bit of a, a custom, a bit of a tradition here in the EU, Friday morning at Ancon. If you're feeling tired, you get up, you take your book, you go and you stand at the sides, right? Just stand at the sides because I tell you, it's much harder to fall asleep standing up than sitting down. Um, don't go to the side and decide that I'll just, I might just lie down. Because I, I, I really do feel that when I close my eyes, I suddenly can concentrate a lot better. Mm. That may be physiologically true, but it's only for a very brief second, and then you're snoring um, straight after that. So maybe don't go to the side and like that, but go to the side, stand up. No one will care. Just get up, stand there, and then if you want to sit down, maybe sit down back on the edges so you don't disrupt people as you sit down. Anyway, let's pray. Let's get on and learn some more wonderful things from our great God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity to open your word together. Please, by your spirit, encourage us, teach us, so that we might live for you and live for your glory, because we know that that is the good that you have created us for. Amen. What is the thing that you live for? Do you live for sex? For a relationship? Do you just want to get married? What's the thing you live for? Is it for approval to have your parents say, she's a good daughter, he's a good son? To be liked and accepted by your friends, to have someone important in your life, your supervisor, your music teacher, a Christian minister, just say to you, great job, by the way, well done. Is that what you live for, that moment? What's the thing you live for? To be a success. To make that particular sports team. To get a job at that particular firm. To get into that particular course. 
to get your times down to that particular level, to get that sort of grade at uni? What's the thing that you're living for? Is it for fun? Is it for pleasure? Is it for your own comfort? Is it just to do the things that you really like to do? Is it for surfing? Is it for partying? Is it for going out at night? Is it for shopping? Is it for eating? Is it for just chilling with your mates? What's the thing that you live for? Now, maybe God's used this week to fire you up a lot. That's great. Praise God for that. And I'm going to be praying that it lasts. So maybe your answer to the question is, what am I living for? I'm living for Jesus. Well, that's great. But I actually think the Bible puts an even sharper point on it than that. What's the thing we live for? We live for God and his glory. On page 51, we start by noticing God has a righteous concern for his own glory. Uh, Now that the morning community channels have finally finished, praise God for them, I can finally quote something from Isaiah. I've been holding off all week. That's the agreement we come to. They will stick in Isaiah and I'll stay away from Isaiah. Anyway, it's a great book, Isaiah. It's full of truth about God and his glory. This is what it says, what God says there in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. What's God's glory? You can actually see the way the next line in the verse parallels the line about his glory god's glory is everything about him that's worthy of praise you get this it's just god's glory is his awesomeness and i mean that literally it's everything about him that inspires awe praise but what we really notice in this verse is that god himself is protective of his glory My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. He is rightly, righteously concerned for his own glory. I say righteously because it's not wrong for the one true living God to be protective of his awesomeness. The Lord alone is God. It's not right that anyone or anything else should have his glory because he alone is God. And you notice in that verse how determinedly fixed he is on his own glory. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to idols. God's determinedly fixed on his glory because he is a jealous God. He won't tolerate anyone or anything receiving the glory or praise that truly belongs to him. Now we're used to thinking of jealousy as a bad thing, and it often is. But there are some moments where it's right to be jealous. Actually, not so much moments as there are certain relationships in which it's right to be jealous. It's right that I be jealous for the sole intimate affections of my wife. Because it it would be wrong and immoral of her to focus her affections on someone else. Just the same, it would be wrong and immoral for me to direct my affections anywhere else but towards her. 
So it's right for us to be jealous of the affections of the other because of that particular relationship. The same is true of God. It is, it is wrong, it's immoral for the glory and praise that belongs to God to be directed anywhere else. And since God can't stand evil, he's righteously jealous for his own glory. It's his righteous concern. But even as it's right for God to be God alone, to be glorified as God, sometimes you might think, Gee, it does seem like that maybe that means God's just a little bit too into himself. But actually, the fascinating thing is that even as God pursues his own glory, he does it in an other person-centered way. Because he is Father, Son, and Spirit. Why is God not egotistical? Because it's an other person-centered pursuit of his own glory. We saw this uh, way back on Monday night, which feels like 50 years ago, that each of the Father, Son, and Spirit seek the glory of the other in the Godhead. The little picture there, just to remind you on the page, John 16, 14, we learned that the Spirit always seeks to glorify the Son. And in John 17, we saw that the Father glorifies the Son and the Son glorifies the Father. So yes, God pursues his own glory, but not in an egotistical, self-centered way. He seeks his glory astoundingly in this other person-centered way. Okay, so we've seen God won't share his glory with another. He pursues it in this other person-centered way. And next we see there on point three that God rightly, justly, he relentlessly pursues his own glory and his glory is revealed in everything he does. So I've got six examples there in your books of where God reveals his glory. Uh, first, he revo- reveals his glory there in creation. Psalm 19 verse 1, the heavens are telling the glory of God, by which in the psalm, the word heaven can just mean the word sky. The skies, the heavens are declaring, telling the glory of God. Or Isaiah 6.3, the whole earth is full of his glory. You just see part of God's awesomeness, his glory in the world that he's made. But point two, he's also shown his glory in forming a people for himself. Again from Isaiah, uh, this time the Lord is making a promise to bring, bring back his people who've been sent into exile. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Bring my sons from far away and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. God's created this nation, the people of Israel, when he brought them out of Egypt. That was their moment of birth, if you like. He formed and made them. And notice he created them for his glory. God's people, including you and me, who've been grafted into his people through faith in Jesus. We have been created for God, for his glory. That's the reason he's made us his people so that we might be for his glory. Now, that has some pretty big implications, actually, for how we think about each of our own lives. We've been created in Jesus for his glory. 
And that's going to shape how we live, or at least it's meant to. And we're going to come back to that a little bit later. But there's some, because there's some other ways that God reveals his glory too. Uh, through miraculous intervention. You know, when God dramatically intervenes in miraculous ways through the normal order of events or, or um, supernaturally, as it were, through uh, over and above the natural order of events, he displays his glory. You can see one example there in Exodus 16 when God intervenes and miraculously delivers his people from Egypt or John chapter 2 where Jesus does a miracle and we're told that he reveals his bit of his glory there through miraculous intervention. If you turn over the page to page 52, you can see a few more ways God reveals his glory. One is through judgment. God here is about to rescue his people out of slavery in Egypt. He's speaking about Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 14. And the Lord says in verse 4, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and he will pursue them, that is, pursue the Israelites as they leave, so that I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and all his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. See, when God defeats Pharaoh and his army, who had opposed God and opposed his people and opposed his purposes, when God defeats Pharaoh and his army, it will bring glory to God as the true God. It'll be clear to everybody who's the real God, who won the victory. It was the Lord, the God of the Israelites. And that will bring him glory as he judges wickedness and sin. But God also reveals his glory in mercy. Uh, this time, Isaiah 48, the Lord is explaining why he's not going to punish his people for the wickedness that they've done. He's explaining why he's going to show them mercy. Isaiah 48, 9 to 11, he says, For my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you, so that I may not cut you off. See, I have refined you, but not like silver. I have tested you in the furnace of adversity. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For why should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So the Lord's saying there, if I was to cut you off, even though, yes, you deserve it because of your sin, but if I was to cut you off, everyone would think that I'm not the real God. So I'm not, not going to cut you off. I'm going to show you mercy. I'm going to fulfill my promise to you so that no one starts thinking, ah, oh, that Yahweh, he can't really be God because look what happened to his people. They all got wiped out. So even in his mercy to his people, by not punishing as their sins deserve, God reveals and maintains his glory. You know that this week, by God's grace and miracle, people have become Christians amongst us this week. Isn't that amazing? People have, become, have committed their life to Jesus this week who are here. We praise God for that. And you know, what, you know what that reveals? It reveals God's glory. Because he's shown us mercy that we didn't deserve. It reveals God's glory. 
because he kept the promises that he's made to us, that if we turn to him in faith in Christ, he saves us and forgives us and makes us his own children. It reveals God's glory that he's done this in our very midst this week. Praise God for that. God is glorious in his mercy. And the final place where we see God's glory is probably intuitively where we'd least expect it. You see God's glory above everything else in a Middle Eastern wandering preacher some 2,000 years ago. And even more in that wandering preacher's inglorious death by crucifixion. That's where you see the glory of God. Because God ultimately reveals his glory in Jesus the Christ. So that brings us back to one of the passages with which we started way back Monday morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 to 6. The God of this world, says Paul, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not proclaim ourselves, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves for Jesus' sake. For it is the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, who shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. See there at the end of verse 4? What's the content of the gospel according to the end of verse 4? It's the gospel of the glory of Christ, who himself is the image of God. We proclaim this gospel. He says there in the next verse, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. Then you jump down to the end of verse 6. We see in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God. And you find a similar statement in, uh, say, John chapter 1, verse 14, speaking of Jesus. We have seen, says John, his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father. God reveals his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. But even there in Jesus, it's revealed in a most unexpected way. You see there on your page, look at John 13 on the left-hand side. It's the night before Jesus dies. He's been speaking to his disciples, telling them what's going to happen. And he's just dropped a bomb in the room, in the sense of he's dropped this bombshell of information to them. He says, one of you guys, his closest friends, his closest disciples, one of you guys is going to be the dude who betrays me so that I die. One of you. And then he indicates who it is. He gives a piece of bread to Judas. And then you pick it up there in verse 30. So after receiving the piece of bread, I mean, Judas had already made his plans here, right? This is not, wasn't a new moment for Judas. He'd made his plans already. Jesus just knew that he'd done it already. So after receiving the piece of bread, Judas immediately went out. And it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man has been glorified. And God has been glorified in him. If God has been glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself. And will glorify him at once. That is, at the moment that Jesus' death is sealed, the moment where his betrayer gets up, to go and get the deed done, that is the moment where Jesus' glory is sealed. 
Now the Son of Man has been glorified and God is glorified in him. The crowning moment of Jesus' earthly ministry was his death. Not because he had some weird death fetish. It's because he knew that his death was where he would set us free from all of that our sins deserved. Where God would condemn sin in his flesh so that we could live for God, free from sin slavery. That's why the arrow there on the left-hand side of the picture goes up to the cross. Because it was the high point of glory in Jesus' earthly ministry. Now is the Son of God, the Son of Man glorified. Now, there's another passage there on the right-hand side, this time John 17. It's the prayer that Jesus prayed to the Father later that same night. Jesus knows his death is certain. So he speaks here in the past tense, actually, even though it hasn't yet, he hasn't yet been arrested. It's so certain. He says to his Father, I glorified you on earth by finishing the work that you gave me to do. Speaking about his death, ultimately. So now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had in your presence before the world existed. So Jesus is now praying about what happens after his death. He's praying about his resurrection and ascension. And he describes it as the Father glorifying him with the glory that he had in the Father's presence before creation itself had happened. So Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, who put off his glory in becoming one of us, is going to be returned to his glory, but as the resurrected and ascended Jesus Christ. So God's glory is displayed in Jesus, preeminently in his death, but then also in his resurrection and return to the eternal glory he shared with the Father as God the eternal Son. Okay, so that's a bit, of, a bit of the story about how God reveals his glory. And really, that should be enough for us, right? It's enough to know that God's the only one who's worthy of glory. He's revealed that glory in all sorts of ways, supremely in Jesus, and that alone ought to be enough for us. We should just get on and praise him for his glory because he's awesome. But actually, the story marvelously doesn't even stop there. Astoundingly, amazingly, the story does not stop there. So if you turn over the page, page 53, God shares his glory with us. So here's the future that God has in store for us. Romans 5, there on your sheet. Paul says, therefore, since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. Now, if you're one of our sisters and brothers now in Christ who became a Christian this week, those are precious words for you. Hear them, right? They're precious for all of us. You are now justified, declared by God to be right with him. You are holy and blameless in his sight because you have put your faith in Jesus. And as a result, we have peace with God through Jesus in whom we have obtained this grace in which we stand. They're precious words. 
But for some reason, the rest of the verse, we don't know so well. We sort of stop there. But he keeps going. He says, and we boast in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Sharing the glory of God. That's the glory that God said, I will not share with any idol. He shares it with us. What does it mean to share God's glory? Uh, Paul, there on your page, 2 Thessalonians 2, helps us a little bit. He says, For this purpose he called you, through our proclamation of the good news, so that you may obtain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason God has saved you, made you part of his people, is so that you may share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might be like him. That's our great hope. That's the great future God has promised that we long for. That's his sure promise. You will share his glory by being like Jesus Christ, who is the glory of the invisible God. But this is not just something for the future. Actually, what we learn here in the scriptures is this is a project God's already begun in you today. Paul, again, this time, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, he's speaking about the transformation that God does in each of us as we grow in Christ. He says, all of us with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. That is, we see it, mirrors that those days weren't so clear. So he's saying when we see it reflected in a mirror, he means we see it a bit dimly. It's a little bit, it's there, but it's sort of a bit fuzzy. He says, we see the glory of the Lord now as though reflected in a mirror, but we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. So we saw this last night. If you're in Christ, God, the Spirit, is at work in you. He's taken up residence in you to transform you into Jesus' image. And you can see how it's described there. We're being transformed into His image from one degree of glory to another. God's glorification project has already begun in you. As you grow in holiness, as you put to de- sin to death in your life in the power of the Spirit, as you trust God in the hard times and the good times, as you step out in faith and make radical decisions about what to do with your life because of Jesus, all of that is part of God's transformation of you into greater and greater glory. So when you go home and you make the effort to love that challenging person at church or in your Bible study or in the EU, that's greater and greater glory. When you decide to be generous, really generous, with the little amount of money or the lot that you have, that's being transformed in greater and greater glory. When you decide, what the heck, I only live once in this age, and you throw in your career, because you decide you want to tell university students around the world about Jesus, or you decide to become a Howie, or to go to Bible college, or to plant a church, or to start a new ministry, that's stepping out in faith, right? That's sacrificing for Jesus and his kingdom. That's 
growing in greater and greater glory. When you put off the sin that entangles you with the power of God's Spirit, bit by bit, you're becoming more like Jesus. There's greater and greater glory. How great is that? God wants to share His glory with you by making you like the Lord Jesus in all of His glory. And He's already begun it today by your spirit, by His Spirit in you. Okay, so let's then talk just a little bit about why God's glory matters. I've got five reasons, and they start halfway down page 53. First of all, God's glory matters because God's glory is the issue in sin. You might not, not have thought of sin in this particular way before, but God's glory is at the heart of it. Uh, from Romans chapter 1, where Paul speaks about those who refuse to worship the true God, he says, For though they knew God through what he had made, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And here's the key bit. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Now, we've been looking at this in the morning sessions in Isaiah, haven't we? If you're not honoring God as God, then you're worshiping someone or something else, something created. Whether it's sex or relationships, career, pleasure, success, approval, doesn't matter what it is. It's a created thing. That's the heart of idolatry and the heart of sin. You exchange the glory of God for something that is inglorious in comparison. Instead of living for God and His glory, you start living for something lesser that's fundamentally actually not right to live for that thing alone. We're not free to worship any just thing we choose. We've been created by God for Him. But the heart of sin is to not acknowledge His glory, refuse to give Him His glory. So it's no great surprise, is it then, that if God's glory is at the heart of of sin it's the issue in sin it's also then the heart of repentance so in 1 chronicles 16 and maybe that's not a book of the bible you go to terribly often but in 1 chronicles 16 there in the left column at the bottom of page 53 you can see the call that goes out to all the world to worship the lord the true god and part of what it means to turn to him in this passage is to give him the glory that's his due. Here we go, verse 28. Ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations, right? It's a call to all the earth. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering, come before him, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. In fact, that's always been God's call to his whole creation. Give me the glory for which you've been created. Give me the glory that is mine alone. That's what it means to acknowledge that he is God. You can see it there in Revelation 
chapter 14, 6 to 7, in the right-hand column. Then I saw, says John in his vision, I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to proclaim to every nation and tribe and language and people. So this message, this gospel, it's an eternal gospel, right? It, the message never changes. The announcement never changes. It's the same for all time, and it goes out to everyone. Same message from God to all people for all, for all time. Here it is. Here's the message. He said in a loud voice, Fear God, And give him glory. For the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him. Who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. There's God's eternal call. His eternal grand announcement to all people at all times and all places. Fear God, give him the glory. Now of course we know that where that glory has been most clearly displayed is not actually in the heavens or the earth or the things that he's made. He's displayed that glory most clearly, as we've seen, in the face of Jesus, in his death and his resurrection. Which leads us then to point three over the page, top of page 54. God's glory is not just the issue in sin, it's not just the heart of repentance. God's glory is the message in evangelism see when we proclaim the gospel of god what we're doing is telling the world how glorious he is we're saying he alone is worthy of our worship we're saying you should give him the glory that is his due so if you go back to the old testament at the end of the book of isaiah the lord talks about the the word going out from him to the end of the world and this is what he says, Isaiah 66, 19. The Lord says, I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish and Put and Lud, where they draw the bow, to Tubal, to Javan, to the coastlands far away that have not heard of my fame or see my, seen my glory. What's, what's the message he's going to send out to them through these messengers? He says, and they shall declare my glory among the nations that's what we're doing when we proclaim god's gospel we're proclaiming his glory telling the world how glorious he is and we do that by proclaiming jesus because he is the lord so back again to paul 2 corinthians 4 for we do not proclaim ourselves we proclaim jesus christ as lord for it's god who said let light shine out of darkness who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's where God's glory is going to be seen, friends, in the face of Jesus Christ. So we proclaim Him, Jesus is Lord. That's how we proclaim God's glory in our evangelism, by proclaiming Jesus, who is the glory of God. And that's what the next three weeks, right, at Sydney Uni, are going to be about in the Your God mission. Though we'll come back to that in a second. Because God's glory is not just the message in our evangelism, it's even bigger than that. God's glory is so important, it is, in fact, the goal of everything that we do. So, in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Paul is helping the Corinthians understand the freedom that they have in Jesus. 
particularly as it relates to a particular issue the Corinthians had about what sort of food they were allowed to eat. But when he gets to the conclusion, he branches out from just the issue about what to eat, what to drink. And he says it this way, 1 Corinthians 10, 31. He says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. There it is. Whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. So I thought I'd make a bit of a list of everything that you will do. Just to make it clear for you. Here we go. That is, whatever decisions you make in the next 12 months, whatever decisions you make in the next 12 months, do it all for the glory of God. When it comes to deciding where you're going to live at the end of uni, when you finally move out of your parents' house at age 35, Where are you going to live? Don't make a decision based on your comfort. Do it all for the glory of God. When you decide how involved you're going to get at the uni with the EU, make that decision. Do it for the glory of God. When you have to work out how you're going to serve a church, do it for the glory of God. If the time comes and you need to find a new church, don't just do it for your own comfort or where the cool place to go to church is at the moment. Make a decision for the glory of God. If you ask someone to marry you, do it for the glory of God. If you decide to stay single, do it for the glory of God. When you're feeling tired of serving and ministry starts to feel like a drag, do it for the glory of God. When you're full of love for the Lord and you just want to tell everybody, do it for the glory of God. When it comes to spending the money that God has entrusted to you, do it for the glory of God. When you have to work out how to use the time that God's given you. Do it for the glory of God. When it comes out to working out how am I going to use the, the months and months and months of uni holidays I get every year. Well, I should go and get a job to earn lots of money. so that I can... No, just make the decision about how to use that time for the glory of God. However you treat the people with whom God puts you into contact. However you treat them, do it for the glory of God. Whatever you say to people, whatever comes out of your mouth, make sure you're saying it for the glory of God. When you're on the internet, do it for the glory of God. When you're just sitting there in your own thoughts, Do that for the glory of God. When you pray for the world, when you pray about your life, when you pray about the things that are stressing you out, do it for the glory of God. You get the idea? I'll stop there. Whatever we do, whatever 
we do in everything. Let's do it for the glory of our glorious God. And you know why that makes so much sense to do it, to live like that? Why does doing everything for the glory of God, why is that such a sensible way to live? Because, point five, God's glory is the final end to which everything is headed. So again, from Isaiah 66, the Lord speaks about the great future day when he returns. And look how he describes it there. He says, I am coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and see my glory. One day, and it could be any day, the Lord will return in the return of Christ and gather everyone together and we shall behold, see his glory. And that day is described in many different ways in the Bible. You can see it there in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14. But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. How will it be? As the waters cover the sea. I don't know how the waters cover the sea. The waters cover the... It fills it, right? It fills the sea. It's sort of... The waters are massive. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God, like the waters cover the sea. Same picture described yet again in John's vision in Revelation chapter 5. Now, I don't know if you realize that you are actually in the Bible. Uh, You're mentioned here in the book of Revelation, in this vision that Jesus gave to John. If you have a look at Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, see if you can find yourself. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels. Okay, that's probably not you. Okay. (laughs) Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. That's a lot of angels. They encircled the throne of God and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb. That's Jesus, who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature. Hey, there you are. I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne And to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's the great end to which God is taking absolutely everything. That's that the whole creation might be for the praise of his glory. That's where it's all going, friends, to that vision. What will that be like in my experience? I don't know precisely what it will be like, but that tells me truly that all of creation will resound to the praise of the glory of God when it's revealed in Jesus Christ because they will not be able to do anything else. It will be so blatantly obvious. He alone is worthy. So we finish 
with worshipping our glorious God. You notice how that passage from Revelation 5 ended? Verse 14, the four living creatures said, Amen! And the elders fell down and worshipped. That's the right response to our glorious God. Worship. That's the right response to the glorious God who we've been listening to all week as we've studied his word to us together. The right response to this glorious God who's shown us his glory in the face of Jesus is that we worship him. We give ourselves to him. And as we've seen this week, we worship him by pursuing holiness. Because we are his children, he tells us, be holy like I'm holy. We worship him by loving him and loving our neighbor because he in his love has has brought us into his divine relationship of love. We worship him by entrusting ourselves to him because we know he is the sovereign Lord who is in control and is good. We worship him in praise and thanksgiving and awe and wonder. We worship him by proclaiming him. That's what the rest of your life is about. That's what you're to live for. Worshipping your glorious God by doing everything for his glory. That's what the rest of today is about. When you get home this afternoon, how you treat the people you live with is about worshipping the glorious God in everything you do. And let's make it really tight. That's what the next three weeks of mission at Sydney Uni are about, right? Isn't it? Worshipping God. By proclaiming him. To those he loves. This is who God has made you and me, how he's made, who he's made us. He's called us out of darkness into his marvelous light so that we may declare his praises to the rest of his world. So I want to encourage you to live a radical life for the glory of God. Your friends will think you're crazy. Your parents will think you're crazy. Live a life full of faith and hope and love, determined in the power that he provides to do everything for his glory. For all the days and the years that he gives you. And start today. Live it out this afternoon. Live it out in the next three weeks. Live it out in, for the next 40, 50, 60 years. Live for his glory because that's who he's made you to be. Now, you might be excited or terrified by the next couple of weeks on campus. But let me reassure you, we are doing the most sensible thing in the universe. We are declaring the great glory of God, the living God, made clear in the person of Jesus. We're making clear the glory of God who graciously offers all of us salvation and life and fellowship and forgiveness and holiness. It is the most sensible, the most vital thing that we can do. Do everything for his glory. So let me just say, pray for your friends over the next three weeks. Pray earnestly that God would bring them to see his glory in the face of Jesus. Pray for yourself. Pray for the rest of us. That together we would all be filled with his spirit. 
and made bold to share the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. With boldness and with gentleness, with truth and grace. And move forward in faith. Wear the hoodie. Be a fashion disaster. I know that this colour, whatever it is, blue, doesn't go with this colour, which I don't know what it is. I sort of, I'm pretty sure they don't really go. But who cares? Is fashion going to be my idol for the next three weeks? Wear the hoodie so that God might use that in the heart of someone else who you don't even know, sitting in your tute or your lab or your lecture, who some other Christian has, is trying to talk to them about Jesus and invite them along. And, it, and God uses the fact that you, sitting there in just a hoodie, doing your thing, your, your study or whatever, and, and God uses that and just says, that person goes, actually, I, I should go to that. Wear the hoodie and invite your friends. At the end of the day, what have you got to lose? You're actually doing it for the glory of God. And God might just bring that person along. And they might come to faith in Jesus. So invite your friends. Talk with them. Ask them. So that God might be glorified. Live a life of full of faith and hope and love. Do everything in the power he gives you. Live for his glory. Not just these next three weeks. Not just this afternoon. Do it for all the days and years he gives you. Live it out. Okay. I think we've come to the end. Let's pray together. I'm just going to leave a moment for you to bring before the Lord what's on your heart at the moment. How you want to praise him for his glory and commit yourself to do everything for his glory. Glory be to you, God our Father. Glory be to you, God the Son. Glory be to you, God the Holy Spirit. Great Jehovah, three in one. Glory, glory. Glory, glory be to you, our God, whilst the eternal ages run. Amen.